0: The Permaculture Podcast is possible through the support of listeners, and for the Fall Fundraiser we need your help. We have two goals this year, to fund the podcast through 2022, and to complete a special, multi-part series documenting the legendary work of Rosemary Morrow. To accomplish both, we need to raise $12,000. Since 2010, we've sought out and interviewed people practicing permaculture from all over the world. Your donation means we can highlight lesser-known stories and bring new, innovative voices to the permaculture table. If half of the people listening donated just $1, we'd meet our goal. Imagine the work we can do if they gave $2 instead. Whether you can give $1, 2 or $5, or more, any amount will help. You can give online to this campaign at paypal.me permaculturepodcast, using Venmo, at permaculturepodcast, or send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast. Care of Scott Mann, 210 East Fairfax Street, number 300, Falls Church, Virginia, 22046. Do you want to make the leap into a permaculture career, but don't know what your next steps are? Get tailored advice by booking a meandering with me today. In this casual phone call, I'll help you define your goals and strengths, share insights into the current state of the industry, and provide a sounding board for your ideas. You get access to recommendations built on more than a decade of practicing and interviewing permaculture practitioners. The best part is you can book a meandering with me at any time. For more information on what a meandering is and how to schedule a call with me, Check out thepermaculturepodcast.com slash meandering today. This is the Permaculture Podcast. We know that pesticides have an outsized impact on insects in the environment, particularly when broad-spectrum chemicals are used, which kill nearly all the invertebrates they touch. If you've read a warning label on these, or many of the other garden, yard, or farm sprays available, you'll also find cautions about keeping the contents of the container out of waterways or away from amphibians. But what about the other harms of human impacts? Like the destruction of habitat, the ever-increasing noise of industry, the lights that fill the sky with brightness throughout the night, or the other choices we make in our day-to-day living that we might not even be aware of having a negative impact on insects. And once we're aware of this mess, what can we do to start repairing the damage? To look at these problems and find solutions, I'm joined by Vicki Hurd, author of Rebugging the Planet. In addition to sharing a wide overview of the harms to insects in the modern age, we also dive into ways we can make a difference in our homes, across the green spaces near us, in our communities, as well as how to tackle the systemic problems in order to care for the microfauna of the soil, water, and air. Enjoy this conversation with Vicky, and I'll join you again after. Then, Vicky, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, and what brought you to write Rebugging the Planet? And we can take the conversation from there.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's great to be talking to you. Yes, I've got 30 years of working in the environment movement in the UK, but I have worked on global campaigns as well as local but before that, I did a, a master's degree in pest management and a biology degree, because I've always been fascinated by invertebrates, and I ended up studying pesticide effects on slime moulds, so I went into agriculture policy, but I didn't want to go into the business of killing them, so I ended up working for Friends of the Earth in the UK and various other organisations, but I've maintained that love of insects, and the Stories recently about the decline of invertebrates across the globe. Some really scary stories got me thinking I could possibly apply my communication tools and the ideas that I have on tips for people. I had the idea of having 100 tips you can do to save the bugs. And that became the idea for a book which Chelsea Green very much liked. And I had the idea of the title Rebugging because I was inspired by the rewilding initiatives that have been going on across Europe and in the UK where people are letting nature do their thing and getting an inspirational nature back as a result and I think we can do that on a small scale everybody can do a bit of rewilding using the bugs by supporting the bugs so that's where rebugging the planet came from and a love of bugs I love them I think they're incredible.
0: And did your master's program in pest management change your mind at all, or were you always bug-loving when you went into it, and so you were looking for alternatives to the business of usual with insecticides?
1: Yes, it was all about the development of pest management systems. That was the long title, and it was about looking at alternatives in the round. So we were looking at genetic engineering and biological controls, which I got particularly fascinated by. The bugs or the other biological systems that can control the pests and diseases, like we know ladybirds or ladybugs will eat aphids, that kind of thing, and how you can use that on a a wider scale. So yeah, that was what it was about.
0: I'm always fascinated by that because my master's program was in resource management. And a lot of our conversations were around the traditional methods of managing resources. So it was a lot about, you know, traditional timber logging and things like that. Though I, of course, came to it as a permaculture practitioner looking for how we could use that information more productively from a regenerative standpoint. And it's always interesting hearing someone's journey down these roads and how they come to these decisions.
1: I think the permaculture approach of using a very diverse system and maximizing productivity whilst maximizing nature's ability to do you know, to help you produce is fantastic. And it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, the whole holistic approach is one that I think will eventually in farming have to go down because we can't keep trashing the environment and nature as we are at the moment. It's catastrophic in many ways what we're doing now.
0: What you were saying about the decline in insect populations. I was born at the tail end of the 70s, a child of the 80s. And I remember when we would go on road trips during the 80s that it was we would be stopping and I would be helping my father scrub bugs off of the windshield two or three times on a long journey. But these days, it seems like maybe a couple dozen insect strikes a summer now.
1: Great minds think alike, Scott, because that was actually the subtitle, original subtitle of my book, which was Rebugging the Planet or How to Get the Bugs Back on Your Windscreen. But the (laughs) uh, publishers didn't think that would make sense to the younger generation because they haven't seen that. So we've got a different subtitle, which I like, but uh, yeah, I totally agree. You know, there's a big change and people can see that change, particularly people of a certain generation.
0: And it's just amazing to me how quickly that has happened. And I was wondering if you might be able to speak some about this insect loss before we move to the methods of what we can do to help support them.
1: Yes. I mean, it's really quite dramatic, as you say, it's, it's been quite fast the way we've lost a lot of uh, the diversity of insects and other invertebrates, even worms, spiders, all the other invertebrates, and the numbers. And there are a lot of factors, and I talk about them briefly in the book, from climate change, which is having an impact, all climatic uh, extremes, and habitat loss. That's a big issue, where you clear the corridors that bugs need around fields. You clear gardens to put concrete or you know, um, timber down. Many, many reasons, and also pollution, pollution of water, pollution of soil, pollution of air is is having a major, major impact on insects. And, you know, some of the insecticides that are being used and herbicides across the globe with increasing numbers on crops is catastrophic also. It's, you know, there's one, the neonicotinoid insecticide, which is now known to be unbelievably harmful for all types of insects, but particularly wild bees. And that's mm-hmm. obviously very important. So, you know, there's pollution, climate change, habitat loss. And the way that we've homogenized the countryside or even our gardens is the big problem. We need to get things more diverse, messier in our gardens. We can be all part of the solution. But the way we eat and the way we clothe ourselves and the way our politicians act are part of the problem.
0: And when you speak about that pollution, it was one of the interesting things that emerged in My research and some of the guests who I've had on the show over the years is that some of these chemicals in the environment, even though the quantities are sublethal, the impact that they have on the ability for like bees and insects and invertebrates to reproduce or to live long, healthy lives, even though it might not kill them outright, can be so damaging that it just completely disrupts their reproductive and life cycle.
1: Absolutely. It can can disrupt their mating and even their ability to communicate with each other. They often use pheromones to communicate and it can interrupt that. But yes, it's a chronic effect often instead of an acute effect. And there's also the effect of chemicals interacting with each other. So they're they're often tested in isolation. But when they actually interact together in the environment, that synergistic effect can be worse as well. And that's often not tested. We think that should change. But yeah, it, it's, absolutely, it's a chronic effect as well as acute ones that we need to be addressing, testing and stopping.
0: And so you say those interactions, so it's a little bit of one chemical, a little bit of another, not only how they're combining in the environment, but as the insects and invertebrates pick that up, the impacts that can have.
1: Yes, absolutely. Sort of cocktail effect, we call it in, in uh, our reports. And it, you know, it can actually be a greater effect Even some of the inactive ingredients, like things like surfactants, which are not seen as part of the toxic chemical, but they can affect, for instance, an insect's ability to sit on water. If they're water-living insects, you know, it can be an impact on the water system. So all these things have, have an impact, and the less we're needing them, the better, really. So we need to develop systems that are more naturally controlling themselves and reduce overall chemical
0: load. And those surfecants are like those things that make our soap sud up and things like that.
1: Yeah, it breaks surface tension. And uh, obviously our cleaning agents, washing, all those kind of things. One of the scary things I've found when I was researching for the book is the amount of chemicals that can remain on microplastic bits in the water or in the soil. Because microplastics we know are a problem, because insects and, and water species can ingest them instead of their proper food and it it, it can uh, hurt their stomachs and cause huge amount of problem. We know that uh, microplastics are a big problem, but they can also carry, because they've got a very large surface area, they can carry chemicals and toxins into the environment, into the marine environment, into the water, into the soil. So, you know, there's multiple problems related to chemicals and in fact, plastics too.
0: And so that increased surface area has kind of an outsized carrying capacity to bring those chemicals into the environment
1: absolutely yeah and so the more tiny tiny microplastics in the environment the worse the problem can be and they've they've studied this impact on coral reefs and it can be it's been seen to be quite appalling really
0: and then from what you were saying those microplastics are also being found in insects it's not just like fish and macrofauna that are eating plastics but insects as well
1: absolutely and lots of those macrofauna are eating the insects which have got the plastics in them so that's how it arrives in larger animals. You know, the whole food chain often starts with the, the um, insects and the zooplankton, the really tiny invertebrates in the system, obviously, that are feeding on um, algae, but sometimes now they're feeding on plastics. And so the uh, plastics go up the food chain. Um, okay. yeah, it's-
0: and this is similar to like, when we see mercury concentration in large fish and things like that, that because those chemicals are being concentrated in the smaller animals as those are being eaten by their predators. That's then being concentrated in the larger and larger animals.
1: Absolutely, ending up in the whales. And you can see there's big problems with um, organochlorines, I think, or organophosphates in in the Mm -hmm. whales and and persistent organochemicals that are really highly concentrated in the very large mammals and, and sharks.
0: And when you were speaking about pollution, I think that chemical pollution and environmental pollution are things that we can grasp pretty easily because of how much we use those products in our day-to-day lives or see them used around us. But when you were doing research for the book, did you look at anything like light pollution and the impact on insects? I
1: did. Light pollution and noise pollution. Um, And in fact, Phone pollution, the phone frequencies, is also something that we need to start thinking about. But looking at light pollution, it can really affect the ability of invertebrates to breed, to feed, to find their food sources, because they're relying on light rhythms and darkness, some of them darkness, obviously, to find their habitats when they're nocturnal animals. And so it can cause a huge amount of problems. And the organisation called Bug Life in the UK have done a, a report on this and identified this as a really big issue for certain invertebrates, um, particularly those nocturnal ones like moths and other species that travel by night to avoid predators. And so it's a big problem. Noise pollution also for mating when animals are using vibration as their communication tool for mating or for alerting other individuals to danger, for instance. Their noise pollution can really interfere with that, and there's a lot of studies showing that, that happening with spiders, um, I think crabs as well, and other species that I talk about in the book. And then there is uh, the phone signal pollution, 5G. There is data showing that it can actually, I call it cooking the bees. And the, obviously we need more research and we need to be careful. The phones are a very important part of our lives now, but we need to really be questioning some of the rollout, the universal rollout of very high frequency signals, which carry a huge amount of energy. And so for, for small animals like bees, they can absorb that energy and it can cause problems as we are finding out with some of the research.
0: With those specific issues of light pollution and noise pollution, before we move on to more of your solutions for these problems, do you have any additional thoughts just on those that you'd like to share with us on what we can do as individuals to reduce our noise and light impacts?
1: So... Absolutely. There are things people can do, and I've got lots of tips in the book about how you can change your lighting systems in your yard um, or inside so that it reduces the glare and reduces the amount of light pollution that you're causing in your environment. That's really important. You can also ask your council to change the lighting systems so they're low impact and they're not huge amount of light stopping moths and others from um, being able to live well. And reducing noise pollution that's an obvious thing you can sort of not play loud noises or if you've got a in nature in your environment if you're having a picnic or or things like that try and reduce the impact you're having generally on the environment in terms of noise is a good thing
0: what are other solutions that you found through this process of writing your book and were there any that particularly surprised you
1: well i One of the things I started investigating, because I work on food and farming a lot, so I can write a lot about food and farming and the impact it has on invertebrates. And there are a lot of ideas in there of what you can do in terms of what you buy, what you cook, what you choose to buy, and also where you buy your food from. Loads and loads of ways you can really help the invertebrates by buying organic and by buying fresh, not going for junk food, all sorts of things. But it, what was really interesting was looking about the other things that we buy. And I investigated our clothing and wrote a chapter, which actually got very long. It had to be edited down about all the materials that we use for our clothing and for fabrics in our house. And it was really, really horrific. The story of cotton. And, you know, it's sort of called white gold because it's a very lucrative crop, but it, it's also a very vulnerable crop to pests and diseases and so a huge amount of insecticides are used on the global cotton crop so what is really exciting though is what's being done with organic cotton and working with producers in some parts of the world which I talk about in the book where they're actually making a good living being able to sell their cotton as organic and not using chemicals on it but that market needs people to support it so people need to buy that produce. Leather is obviously a product of the land and it can be a good use of the animals if animals are being farmed and you want to use leather that's a good one but make sure it isn't one that's being produced with a lot of chemicals and it's wool so there's loads of ways in which you can really help to reduce the impact on the land by choosing products that are a low impact but also by using them as much as you can don't throw them away the whole fast fashion culture is really harmful so keep using your products and buy secondhand, for instance. That's a brilliant way of reducing impact on the land. And that goes for other products like timber, like metals, all those things that come from mining the system or draining the resources and hurting river systems. All the, all the things you buy have an impact on the bugs. So try and live lightly. But it was very surprising how damaging cotton crop is. And also plastics coming from your clothes, because a lot of clothes we buy now Are from artificial fibers like polyester. And that can create microfibers in the environment, which are also microplastics.
0: Which goes back to what you were speaking to earlier that those microplastics then become not only this non food source that's being eaten, but also a carrier for all these other chemicals that are emerging in the environment.
1: Absolutely. People don't necessarily connect that with the um, clothes they buy. You know, when you wash them, those fibers are shared. So think about that before you buy.
0: And that points then for permaculture practitioners to many of the things that we talk about and engaging in that it's not just about reducing consumption or reusing or recycling, but also learning to repair so that we make a choice once for something that is durable and high quality that we then learn the skills to repair them. And then, yeah, when they can't be worn any further for whatever reason, what are ways that we can repurpose them and continue to reuse long before they would ever make it to the waste system.
1: Absolutely. And we need to get political about it as well and demand the right to repair. Because a lot of products that we buy, for instance, our phones or our other equipment in our homes use a lot of chemicals that are mined. And that's very damaging. So we should be able to repair those systems rather than throw them away after a couple of years and get a new one. And that right to repair should be enshrined in law so that every company makes their products repairable.
0: Speaking to something very true to my heart as someone who came from the information technology world and worked there for many years, you know, supporting technology for 20 or 30 years with repairs and things like that. But yes, this frustration over technology now that seems like it's made only to last for two or three.
1: We can't continue like this. So we need to make a political point, you know, with a small p, but to our politicians at state and uh, federal level to make sure these things are happening.
0: And when you speak to that right to repair, it's not just having the legal right to do something like that, but also reaching out to manufacturers and making sure that they are producing things that can be repaired.
1: Absolutely. And also, you know, making sure systems available for people know and feel confident about getting things repaired. Yes. It's a big change that needs to happen and having things in a circular economy. So when products have to be taken out of a system, like for instance, a phone, They are recycled into a new product. They aren't thrown away, and so more needs to be mined. All those things have such a drain on the land, and therefore the bugs.
0: I thought we were going to have a very personal conversation about planting pollinator crops and, you know, inviting insects in. I
1: (laughs) could talk about that too, but I think a lot of your your listeners will know a lot about that already. They're really good at that stuff. They're doing the right thing. What I would say to them is to spread the word you know, get people to really understand the role of bugs is the role of all of us if we've if we got to know it. If you read my book, and spreading the word and the love and sort of joining together to actually create bug-friendly habitats in your community, in your parks, you know, even on the road verges, there can be bug-friendly habitats everywhere.
0: And that it's doing this isn't difficult, and that there's this idea within ecology of sinks and sources that a source is, you know, where a large population of animals exist and then sinks or places that they might travel to. We can create wildlife corridors that connect green spaces. But I think from my own personal life, two insects that are really very dear to me are lightning bugs. I don't know if you have those in the UK.
1: We do, they're called glowworms, I think here, which is a wrong name. They're not a worm, but they're called glowworms. <laughs> they light okay. up at night, yes?
0: Yes, they're one of the bioluminescent insects, and they're something that I didn't realize how small their range was. I grew up in Appalachia and the mid-Atlantic here in the United States, but their range is kind of limited, but they're something that you know just means a lot to me because they're a reflection of home to me. They're a cultural part of my life, but as a kid, I remember capturing them and putting them in a jar to act as a nightlight and then you know releasing them the next day.
1: It's a good way to get children excited about invertebrates and they shouldn't lose that joy and curiosity and and love that they often have when they're young. We need to keep that childlike love of bugs and we often get fearful. That's one of the things I talk about in the book, about rebugging our attitudes. So as adults, we don't put the fear of bugs into children. That's something we all need to take on board and uh, instill that in children that bugs are fantastic and those glowworms or uh, lightning bugs are amazing creatures and we need to look after them.
0: I will admit I was arachnophobic for a large portion of my life, but it was through the eyes of my children that I kind of got over that fear. And it was as my daughter was exploring the world and would run out of the tall grass covered in slugs and insects (laughs) that that kind of helped. And then it was getting into macro photography and then just spending a couple days in the yard with my daughter, finding whatever spiders I could and taking these close-up pictures and realizing that there were at least a dozen different spiders just in this little acre I called home.
1: It's fantastic, isn't it? And because of the pandemic, I've been stuck at home for various reasons. And so I've got a tiny garden, 10 by 10 meters, and uh, it's been amazing what I've found. If I don't know if you've got zebra jumping spiders in America, but they're tiny, tiny things. You could take a photograph and then zoom it up on your phone and you can see just how stunning, absolutely stunning and gorgeous it is. And you wouldn't know that just looking at it from a distance. But this is the joy of the smartphone. You know, I have to be careful about talking about phones, but they are amazing ways to communicate the joy and intricacy and beauty of invertebrates to people. And I've actually started Mm -hmm. a a website putting the photographs that I found just in my tiny garden. So yeah, I mean, it was great that you found that as well.
0: And that's, where the other insect that means so much to me are monarch butterflies and again that was through my daughter's exploration of the world she fell in love with them and we wound up seeing this documentary on monarchs i didn't know this even though you know i've been an environmental educator for years was that they winter in mexico migrate through the united states and then breed again in canada And then there's like this super generation that is birthed in Canada that will fly from Canada all the way back to Mexico. And in learning about that alongside my daughter, finding out how important it is to plant their host species.
1: It's one of the longest known, yeah, invertebrate migrations. They do have several generations on the way. They lay eggs and caterpillars come out, so they need that on the whole way from Mexico to Canada. They need habitats and... uh, food sources. It's really important to uh, recognize that. I talk about that in the book. Monarch butterflies are a wonderful, amazing phenomenon. And if anybody asks me what my favorite novel is that that talks about insects, I always talk about flight behavior by Barbara Kingsolver. It's a fantastic book that covers this. And yeah, amazing insect.
0: And the way that just planting a patch of milkweed can make a huge difference for monarchs making it on their migration. Being aware of those insects that are in our environment, we can create those kinds of habitats and that kind of plant diversity that's necessary to support them.
1: People probably don't realize what they could achieve just in a small part of their garden. Even if they want the most of their garden to be a dull lawn, a small part could make all the difference if it's left to be wild or if a lump of logs on your garden can be an amazing habitat for beetles to lay their eggs and to munch through. All these things can be quite small in terms of effort and land take, but they can make all the difference, as you say, for those insects that need that habitat, that food source, or that shelter.
0: And that it's a place where even if you're a city dweller in an apartment, being able to put out a window box with some of these flowers, you know, those can make a big difference.
1: Absolutely. They can make the difference for an insect in survival and not survival because it provides a stopping post, a staging post for them to have a rest, to shelter from a predator or to feed or to drink water if they can find water in in those pots. That's really, really important. And it's one of those things about the corridor, the green corridors that we've lost a lot of as our cities become more concreted and our rural areas become monocultures. You lose those corridors for insects to travel through, which they need to recolonize or to mate, find mates.
0: Because of your background, In food, you mentioned organic agriculture earlier, but what are some other ways that we can have beneficial relationships with insects through our food system?
1: Our food system could be so different and so much about sharing the farmed environment with the invertebrates. By having more rotations, that's more crops within a system, a farmed system, or if you've got an allotment or, or growing area yourself, having more diversity of crops that's automatically going to be better for the bugs. And having edges. One of the pieces of research, which actually I think was American research, showed absolutely that the edges of fields and the size of fields makes all the difference to diversity of invertebrates in the environment and their ability to survive and do what they do, like pollinate and carry seeds and all those kind of things they do for the farmed environment. Having ever larger sizes of fields and monocultures is one of the worst things for invertebrates that and chemicals and the pollution which happens from chemicals and soil runoff and manure into the water system obviously rivers and freshwater systems and marine systems are incredibly important also for the invertebrates and farming can have a big impact on those systems as well so there's many ways but I think the key word I would use is diversity it's all about diversity and that is a good thing for the invertebrates. That and also leaving nature to to survive in areas like having bits of woodland, leaving trees, hedgerows, messy bits of of habitat for the bugs. That's critical too.
0: Having some space that we leave alone in the landscape to return to whatever it would like to be.
1: Absolutely. Yes. The Little rewilded bits in an urban setting or in a farm setting. But we also need to Think of the in-field impact of the farming system, and so reducing the chemicals, having more diversity, using crops that build fertility in the soil as well, like legumes, instead of using artificial fertilisers. That's one way that organic and permaculture and biodynamic farmers build fertility in the soil by having leguminous crops, which can fix nitrogen in the soil, so they don't have to use artificial fertilisers. All those kind of things will have an impact. But one of the key things as well is thinking about the soil itself. There is an incredible amount of invertebrates in the soil. And most people know about the worms, but there is, you know, a huge population of other invertebrates like springtails and beetles and ants, all of which are really important for a healthy soil environment. And healthy soil gives you healthy plants, and healthy plants. Actually, repel diseases and pests better than unhealthy, stressed plants. And so you need less chemical.
0: And that becomes part of this natural solution of looking at models like integrated pest management, which are about having more beneficial insects and keeping our edges diverse in order to invite in those creatures that will help manage our agricultural pests rather than needing to rely on pesticides and. Other chemicals.
1: Absolutely. Yes, there's so much we could do to encourage those pest predators like beetle banks, which can house beetles, which will then go into the crop and eat the slugs and other pests, and the wasps, the small wasps, which will lay their eggs inside the larvae of pest. Like if you've got moth pests or other larval pests, the parasitoid wasps, which is a horrible word, but often wasps that lay their eggs in those larvae. And that will be a fantastic control. But for that to work, you do need the pest species around. So if you remove all the aphids from your garden, you won't get the predators. So you need to leave a little bit for the predators and get that cycle going. So you create a balance in your system and you'll have to put up with a little bit of pest damage or pest appearance, but at the same time, you don't have any chemicals. How great is that?
0: And that's where, as consumers, as we get a more bug-friendly attitude, we can be more accustomed to purchasing produce that perhaps doesn't look as fantastic.
1: Yes, getting the ugly fruit, we call it here, which I don't think is a very good name, but I often get asked to talk about that. It's often seen as a bit of a marketing thing now in the UK. I don't know if it is in the the American, but uh, I think we need to get used to all of our fresh produce not being looking perfect. I had a chapter that was called What's worse than having half a caterpillar in your apple? And it was, you know, having the chemicals in the apple. So it was slightly trick on the usual phrase of what's worse than finding a a caterpillar, finding half a caterpillar in your apple but actually it's far worse if you don't find a caterpillar in your apple because it's been laced with chemicals.
0: And the history of chemical application to apple orchards is just, I mean, it's a fascinating history, but it's also dramatic and traumatic because of the, I think it was cyanide containing compounds that were used for so long or arsenic. I'd have to go look again, but the soil is just rife with those chemicals now. Speaking to Caterpillars, when I was a kid, I remember getting caterpillars in my apples from time to time, but I probably haven't seen a caterpillar in an apple in years now.
1: Yeah, it's a a very long legacy, unfortunately, the chemicals. You're right. That's one of the things I studied in my master's, just how many sprays were done almost every day. (laughs) It was extraordinary. And they're obviously a very attractive crop for pests, but there are ways of doing it and minimizing the threat, but also telling customers to expect the odd blemish the odd bit of scabbing. And actually, sometimes that can make the apple taste sweeter.
0: Are there any other suggestions you would have for us as food consumers on what to look for, what to ask, or how we can make different choices when we spend our dollars and pounds?
1: Yes, well, one of the knotty ones, the difficult ones to talk about is meat. But we have to talk about meat and livestock in general because the land take, of the, life, the very intensive livestock system that's built up over the last 20, 30, 40 years is incredible. The amount of land to feed intensive pigs and poultry and cattle is very, very large. And that land is sprayed with chemicals, with fertiliser, and then it's fed to animals in a very inefficient system. There are definitely ways, and, and in the UK we have great pasture-fed livestock systems where beef and sheep are grazed on land that couldn't really be used for anything else. But that's not the majority of the meat that we eat. And we need to start learning that and moving away from eating so much cheap meat. That's hard to hear for people who love meat. But actually, you can have a little bit of meat in your dish, have it as the flavour, not the dish itself. And, and there's, there's so many ways of eating flexitarian or vegetarian, um, I think it's said in America. To reduce your consumption, and if you love meat, you still have a bit, but try and choose better meat, well-pastured meat, but don't go for the cheap fast food meat. That's one definite way. The other one is to think about eating fewer junk foods. Junk foods rely entirely on very large monocultures of very uniform produce of grain, sugar, fats and oils, all those kind of things. And that's not great for the bugs either, because that creates a monoculture with heavy chemical use. So try and avoid junk food. And Avoiding junk food is good for yourself as well, probably for your purse and definitely for the environment.
0: And one last piece from your book that I'd like to touch on before we start to draw our conversation to a close is you also mentioned that reducing inequality and poverty would help nature as well.
1: Yes, it's one that I think people haven't necessarily thought about very much, but at international level, the UN has even identified inequality as a really big problem for biodiversity because when we create inequalities you create great pressures on the environment for instance around a city if you have a forested area when people are left without the means of production they will deforest their forest or another form of inequality is those lands taken away from rural communities which happens across the globe people have had their land taken away from them, they end up in urban areas, often impoverished with low recourse to good jobs or welfare. And the land is taken for monocultures for producing vast amounts of junk food or cheap meat. And all those things are part of an unequal system which has grown up very much over the last 50 years as part of the farming system. And so that inequality is creating biodiversity loss. And in itself, it can create inequality when you clear an area as we've seen in some of the rainforests and clear out the communities they end up impoverished themselves. I talk about it in the book all the ways in which inequality can lead to biodiversity loss and other ways as well in terms of people not having the means to choose organic food and things like that. They have to choose the cheapest food because they don't have decent incomes because the wealth is concentrated elsewhere and being involved in conservation people being able to get involved in their local parks, they don't have time because they have to work three jobs in order to feed their family, and so on and so on. There's, there's many ways in which inequality is contributing to the decline of invertebrates and, and biodiversity in general. So I have talked about that in, in the book. As I've talked about overconsumption and the too much power in the hands of large agrochemical and agri-food businesses and all those things seem a bit remote from the bugs, but they really matter. And we can all get involved in campaigns to help address those issues.
0: For anyone who would like to learn more about those issues or the impact of our choices on insects or just the general decline in insects over the last several decades, do you have any resources that could help people with this issue of insects and invertebrates in our environment?
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's another book that's been published by an academic. So it's a, it's a different book to mine, but it's called Silent Summer by Dave Golson, which is a, a just been published this year, which is, I would recommend, although <laughs> competing with me. But it's a great book. But in terms of organisations, you know, you'll have a lot of local organisations that you can join that will be supporting conservation in your area. And so supporting them is a fantastic way to support the bugs, but also national organisations like Xerxes Society for invertebrate conservation, and the Audubon Society and other environmental groups will be running things like citizen science, where by actually getting involved in monitoring what insects are around you, you can help build up a picture of their abundance or decline in a particular area, and that's really useful. But also getting involved in their campaigns to tell policymakers what needs to happen. That's absolutely critical. We all need to be political with a small b to change policies that are harmful to the invertebrates and so that's a really critical thing. So any organisation, you know, World Wildlife Fund and others, Conservation International, all those will have campaigns and information on their websites and I've got a long list of those at the back of my book as well so you can get involved. I also talk about how you can get involved in local initiatives and how you might talk to politicians, how you might talk to your friends and neighbours about these things because it's actually about joining together because we can't do this all alone. We need to join together to help the bugs.
0: Get involved in talking with our neighbors, calling politicians, writing letters when we hear about actions being taken that we can support, that we don't necessarily need to be out there with our signs and protesting, but there are lots of different ways we can get involved.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there are so many ways. And some of the ways you can get involved at a really small time resource. Others might take more time. It's up to you. And I give lots of different options, you know, in my book about things that take very little time all the way to get really involved and really active in the large scale campaigns. But anything anybody does is a good thing.
0: And in the few minutes we have remaining, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners?
1: One thing I would say is the book is also full of loads of very incredible bugs. I have got lots of boxes and explanations of how insects have evolved and what some of the incredible social insects do. So it isn't full of doom and gloom and things you must do. It is full of the joy of bugs. So you can read it and dip into it and find out some incredible stories of the invertebrates on your back step or across the globe. There really are an incredible part of our nature that we should know more about.
0: Well, Vicky, thank you so much for that and everything else you shared with me and for joining me for this interview on the Permaculture Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's been great.
0: And that was Vicki Hurd, who you can find at RebuggingThePlanet.org. While you're there, I also recommend clicking on the menu for photos of urban bugs to see dozens of pictures of insects from her garden. Her book, Rebugging the Planet, is available from Chelsea Green Publishing. I'll include links to all of those and more in the show notes. I'm also giving away two copies of Rebugging the Planet. If you're interested send an email to show at the permaculturepodcast.com with the subject bugs, and be sure to include your name and mailing address. I'll randomly pick the recipients for those at the end of November. As with every interview, there's so much to take away or comment on from this conversation, whether that's the impact of fashion and clothing on the environment, or the policies which subsidize commodity crops, making junk food overly cheap, keeping fresh organic food out of the hands of many. As my children reconnected me with insects and inspired a newfound love of bugs, and my own work on changing ourselves to change the world, I'd like to speak to that as my closing thoughts. When we look at all the animals and insects in the world, many can be considered charismatic, especially the megafauna like pandas or polar bears. We're drawn to them when we see them, including some of the small ones like a brightly colored and contrasted monarch butterfly, or to spy the bumbling flight of a bee. But we also need to care for the creepy crawlies, which don't always inspire love at first sight. Watching my children fearlessly interact with creatures that made me uncomfortable to touch, or, in the case of spiders, even to be near, made me wonder why I had those aversions. Though I never discovered the source of my discomfort, Stopping to ask where those fears came from was the first step in my reformation. The next was to get out in the grass and garden to look for all the insects I could find, making their way across the ground or crouched on plants. With my camera in hand, I took close-up pictures of everything I could, especially the spiders. Then, sitting at my desk, pulling those images up on a large screen so that each creature stood perched before me larger than life, I took the time to see if I could identify them. In giving a name to what I once avoided, I was able to begin a relationship with each one. I encourage you to do something similar with the life inhabiting your unique little piece of the world. Whether with a camera, sketchbook, or field guide, spend some time getting to know all the beautiful bugs you can find. Those, however, are just my thoughts. I invite you to share your comments or questions with me, whether you want to talk about this episode or any of the others in the archives. To do so, you can call me or send a text to 717-827-6266, drop me an email, show at permaculturepodcast.com or we can begin a long, slow correspondence when you place a letter in the mail. That address is The Permaculture Podcast Care of Scott Mann 210 East Fairfax Street Number 300 Falls Church, Virginia 22046 From here, there is no new episode next week as I'm off to celebrate my birthday on October 31st. If you'd like to get in touch, I will still be available by phone, text, or email. The show will return with a new episode on November 8th. Until we meet again, Make decisions each day which help to rebug the planet while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.